Names are interesting things. Anybody know what their name means? What does your name mean, Sybil? polite version. You can ask her later what the impolite version is. I don't know. <laughs> Anybody else? Evangeline? Mm -hmm. Michelle? Who is like God? Fantastic. How did you get that one? That doesn't stick. Dweller near the ash trees. Fantastic. Again, I can't understand how you got it. Just really can't. So there is, yeah, go on. Gracious, there you go. Why would you think that, Anne? There are some really interesting names out there. I want to show you a name. This is a genuine name. Uh, it's actually a Brisbane name. A child got this name. Anybody know what the name is? Monty? Yeah. Yeah, go on. No? Go on, Monty. Nadasha. Yep. Yep. Or there are 328 people in the US at the moment with this name. Girls called Absidy. Um, here's an interesting, unfortunate one. In 1837, somebody thought it would be great to call their daughter a niece or a niece. Problem was their surname. <laughs> Maybe a popular one at the moment, uh, given in 1819 to a girl, Barbie. Uh, it's been, and people seen the Barbie movie? I've actually seen it now. I'll get over it done, I think. Um, but again, the problem was not the first name, it was the surname that went with it. <laughs> Barbecue, I love it. But then you get the ones where people did know about it. The singer David Bowie. Anybody would know what he named his daughter? Zoe. Zoe Bowie. Doesn't it sing a little bit? Well, then there's Jermaine Jackson, who named his son Jermajesty. <laughs> you know, it's just... But I think the, the, the absolute epitome of this goes to a New Zealand couple who gave their child a name, and it was so wrong that a court ordered that the nine-year-old child should have freedom to change it under their own auspices and the parents had no say whatsoever because they named this poor little girl that. <laughs> Seriously, can you imagine a nine-year-old at school? She called herself Kay because she was too embarrassed to say what her name was. A name does a lot. A name can be a good name. A name can be a bad name. What does it mean to have a good name? I don't just mean a name that sounds good. 
but a name that comes with respect, a name that you want to have, as opposed to a name you don't want to have. As we begin Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, we're going to wrestle with what it means to have a good name. And I want to encourage you to wrestle with this and think, what does it mean for you, for this church, to have a good name? Well, let's begin, before we open God's word together, let's ask God to help us to understand his word, to wrestle with it, and to respond to it as we should. So would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not a God who remains silent, but you have spoken. And that as we read your word, we hear your voice. Give us open ears and open hearts that we might receive your word, respond to your word, be transformed by your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you know this, but 1 Thessalonians is actually one of the New Testament's earliest writings. Uh, Very, very, very early piece of writing. Paul uh, gives the address at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians, verse 1, Paul, Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Well, let's just unpack unpack this for a little. Thessalonica, um, there's the ruins of the forum in Thessalonica. It's now Thessaloniki, um, still called that, um, in in the Greek province of Macedonia. There, if you want to know where it is, just in there. Held a very particular place in the time of Paul writing to them because it was, again, in the province of Macedonia and it was the major city of Macedonia. Philippi was a very important city, but there's a sense in which Philippi was deemed to be a city in Rome, even though it was just down the road. Philippi was a Roman colony. It had its own special status. But Thessalonica was the place where the the province was governed. This was the major city of Macedonia. And as Paul, Silas and Timothy address this letter to the church in Thessalonica, we're we're seeing some of the earliest Christian writing. Probably the first Christian writing, first, first piece of the New Testament to be written would have been the book of Galatians, which I think is most likely written in Antioch on the way to the Jerusalem Council Uh, which you can read about in Acts 15. Not everybody would agree with me on that, but not everybody agrees with anybody on anything when it comes to dating in the New Testament. We have some idea when the first letter to Thessalonians was written because in the letter, the Apostle Paul talks about Timothy being sent back to Thessalonica And he's just arrived with news from them. And as readers of Acts, we know exactly when that is. Because in Acts 18, verse 5, Paul talks about how 
Silas and Timothy came back from Macedonia with their report on how the church was going. And that's what prompts Paul to write. So it's probably written from Corinth, which is where the book of Acts tells us that Paul was at that time when Timothy and Silas returned. Two Thessalonians, which we're going to be studying uh, in conjunction with one Thessalonians, we're going to be looking at both of them. A two Thessalonians was probably written not very long after one Thessalonians. What is going on, though, in this letter, in this early letter? Paul unpacks, well, th there's some ways in which this is a very, very classic Paul letter. For a start, let's just look at the way he talks about this Thanksgiving. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if you noticed the little trio. Faith, love, hope. Paul uses them. Brings those three together. The end of 1 Corinthians 13, these three remain faith, hope, love. And as these classic gifts, I suppose, of the gospel, these, these things that we do are raised, he, he talks about a work that goes with them. He talks about these things as active things. They're not just ephemeral things, something worth remembering when we talk about love, because in our culture, in, in 21st century Western culture, love is, oh my goodness, it's a mixed up thing. But actually, all of these words are active. And you can see that in the words that go with them, words like work and labour and endurance. Things slogged away at worked hard at, things that are connected to the faith and love and hope that the Thessalonians had because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They were prompted, produced, inspired. What you're seeing is Paul's way of talking about the Christian life, there's what we believe and how we behave and what we believe always leads to how we behave. And it's important that we understand that movement. What we believe leads to how we behave. When we get into trouble is when we break that chain, especially when we break it there. That's when you get things like Legalistic Christianity, behaviour over belief. How you behave is all important and excuses whatever beliefs you might have. Just make sure you do what is right. That's not how Paul talks about how behaviour. He talks about as something that flows from what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and the faith, hope and love with which we respond to the gospel is the thing that then drives our behaviour, our work, our endurance our labour. Or you can get the other version, super spiritual Christianity. That Christianity that is all about your faith and nothing to do with your works so that you can be, um, well, 
Isn't it, aren't we a bit sick of watching what this looks like as we see yet another prominent figure fall? We watch it on our news. Big talk of spirituality. But compromised in their behaviour. Detaching what they believe from how they respond. Or the one that is actually a very popular one for our culture, the one that our culture would prefer us to hold, hobby Christianity. That thing where you are you, like they are them, you've just added a hobby on. Right? They like to play soccer, you like to go to church, all good. It's just a hobby. It's just a little affectation. It's just a little quirk. Belief is not what shapes behaviour in that chain at all. It's completely disconnected. And as we go through Thessalonians, we're going to see this pattern at work as Paul talks about what it is that we believe. It's why we spend so much time on what we believe. So that we don't disconnect it from how we behave. But it's why we can't stop at just what we believe. There's a thing that that then produces in us. A way that that then causes us to want to act. That, to use Paul's language, there's a labour that love prompts in us. There's a, a work that faith produces in us. There's an endurance that hope inspires in us. So as we work through 1 and 2 Thessalonians, we're going to expect to see some things about who we are and what we believe that then shapes how we act and what we do in response. Let me encourage you right at the outset, let's keep those in the right order. What we believe leads to how we behave. Well, let's take a look as Paul then opens up in these opening verses of 1 Thessalonians. This idea of a name, because the problem the Thessalonians had is that they ended up with a, a message that had a bad reputation delivered by a messenger with a bad reputation or a bad name, if you like. What do we know about Paul's visit to Thessalonica. Well, Sybil read it to us. Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia. They came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them. So we know he was there for at least three weeks, right? Well, I suppose at least two weeks. One would presume that the days around it kind of added up to about three. They may have been more. But certainly for three Sabbath days, he was there. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. So his message is about Jesus, the Messiah. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. The response from his hearers was mixed. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So some of the, 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 the Jews in the synagogue responded. 
some of the people from Thessalonica who just hung around, who were interested, not yet committed, but they were interested, engaged, maybe potentially they might convert to Judaism. And along comes Paul with his message and sweeps up a whole heap of them. Not to mention quite a few prominent women. And the implication, I think, in that is that possibly some whose husbands didn't share their view on how good Paul's message was. That's trouble. Now, when, when the Apostle Paul came to Thessalonica and spoke, people responded to this message about Jesus positively. Uh, and in verse 5 of 1 Thessalonians 1, we, we see that. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. You welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. They re responded to the message that Paul brought with joy. But notice that there, whilst they're responding with joy, their experience is not a positive one. What's going on in the community around them is not good. It, there's severe suffering. Again, we return to Acts 17 and read of the others who listened to Paul. But other Jews were jealous and they rounded up some bad characters. Oh, I love that term, bad characters. Isn't it great? I remember when I was in New Zealand, in a small town in New Zealand, the, uh, uh, the local um, police officer would have a little column in, that he'd put into the, the, the community news sheet. And uh, one time he was talking about these lowlifes. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm sure you get away with that anyway, but in a small country town. And, but yeah, here are some people easily whipped up. The kind of people who just need an excuse. And those who are jealous give them one. So they form a mob started a riot in the city. You can see the wonderful piece of, what do they call it? Plausible deniability on the part of the Jews. It wasn't us. We didn't do anything. We weren't there throwing stones. We weren't part of the mob. They just whipped it up. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring him out to the crowd. Now, this new little community made up of, what were they? Jews, God-fearing Greeks, prominent women, as they've, this little community who've gathered, possibly gathering in Jason's house. I don't know, you, often they would meet in somebody's house. Maybe Jason's house was one of the places they gathered. Certainly it was the place where the mob expected to find Paul, Silas and Timothy. Presumably somebody heard about the mob coming and got Paul, Silas and Timothy out of there. But whatever it was, Jason gets grabbed When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all denying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. 
This is actually a very, very tense situation. What we have here is the city officials. It's actually a technical term. They're the politarchs. This is not just your country magistrate. This is the Thessalonian High Court. The politarchs were the ones who decided for the city. This was the these were the big guys. These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here with their message, their message about Jesus. Now, Jesus was not a popular message, even in a Greek city. Quite aside from, from the, the, the Jewish rejection of Jesus as Messiah, there's the fact that he even called himself, that he was called the Messiah at all. Messiah means king, or Christ is king. And he was executed for sedition. That was the charge, proclaiming himself to be a king when Caesar was king. What is more, we know from reading 1 and 2 Thessalonians that the Apostle Paul talks a lot about what's called eschatology, the end. And it includes this idea that in, in, in the end... Jesus and Jesus alone rules, which means Caesar doesn't. And the complaint that was brought to the politarchs was that they are defying Caesar's decrees and saying that there is another king called Jesus. Some recent decrees, thanks to Jewish messianism, people who were uh, excited about the idea of the coming king, probably more the people who saw a military messiah, who whipped people up. There were, we know that that happened in the first century. People got really uh, excited about it and got quite um, violent about it as well. They caused a lot of uh, angst in the Roman Empire. There were riots. There was all kinds of trouble. And decrees were issued. One of the things that the decree said is that you're not to go into the future of the Roman Empire. You're not to talk about it. Whether it's, whether it's Jewish messianism or, or, or whether it's somebody going down to, I don't know, do something horrible to a chicken, but all the auguries and the, the gross things that they would do to try and tell the future was banned when it came to the, Roman, the, the future of the Roman Empire by decree from two different Caesars. And we know from 1 and 2 Thessalonians that one of the big things that they have an issue with with Paul's teaching, that they're trying to wrestle with, is Paul's teaching when Jesus and Jesus alone rules. The message that Paul comes with about Jesus is not a popular message. It's a message with a bad reputation. And it's being brought by a messenger with a bad reputation because there's another notorious name and that's Paul. He's only just been released from prison in Philippi. He stirred up trouble in Antioch and Iconium. He was stoned by a mob at Lystra. Where he's been, trouble has followed. 
And just as Paul can get from those places to Thessalonica, so can the news about Paul. And notice what the mob say about Paul and Silas and Timothy. These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. I get ability for all Jewish messianism, but nevertheless, what you're seeing is a bad message with a bad name. Well, there's a challenge for the new church in Corinth, in Thessalonica, isn't there? Are you going to stay attached to a bad name, a bad reputation? Yet it's interesting that the reputation of the church in Thessalonica is, is quite different. Their name is a good name amongst Christians. Verse 7 Paul of 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul says, You became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, and the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. These guys, these guys, are, Paul's saying, you, you guys are the exemplar. You guys are the guys I want to talk about and say, you want to know what it looks like when this is done right? Just look at these guys. Here's the model. The reputation, just like the reputation of Paul had spread and people were saying, these guys are stirring up trouble with everywhere. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. He goes on, therefore, we do not need to say anything about it for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Paul, with his message, with a bad reputation, Paul, with his own bad reputation, no, they received him, they welcomed him, they heard the truth, and they were transformed by it. The big thing that rings out about them was not just that they were ready to listen to Paul's message of the gospel, it was that they were transformed by it. It changed them. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They turned their back on the things that are held up as worthy of your energy and time and that they saw Jesus as replacing those things. The one whom God raised from the dead and who now they wait expectantly for. They know who their king is and they wait for him. People, this is their reputation. People who received the apostle and his teaching, who responded, turning to God from idols, and who are waiting, expectant, trusting in the return of Jesus. Confused, we're going to see that later, but trusting. This is the reputation Paul says has rung out. This is the reputation that this church has. I want to start by just encouraging you. 
if you want to be somebody who belongs to the Lord Jesus and you want to have a very good reputation in a secular world, they're going in opposite directions. At some point, at some point, staying with Jesus will bring you under this world's rejection, will earn you a bad name. Whether it's bigot, whether it's obsessive, religious fanatics, whatever it happens to be. And you could choose to preserve your name in this world. And turn your back on the one who rescues us from the coming wrath. And there's something that happens when you turn your back on a rescuer. <laughs> but on the other hand, what we see in the Thessalonians is people whose reputation was driven by a response to the gospel. But there's a bigger reputation that's spoken of in these verses. I wonder if you saw it. I deliberately skipped over the verse so you wouldn't have seen it on the screen unless you were concentrating when it was read to you. It's in verse 4. Paul says, we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. He has chosen you, you who are loved by God. Here's the reputation worth having. Jesus loves you. <laughs> you and transforms you as the word of God does its work, not simple words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction, transformed by the Lord Jesus. I want to encourage you as individuals and as a church to choose to have a name the name of one who belongs to that God. Even if it means that your name in this community is not great. Now we'll see later that there are reasons to not squander your name in the community. But neither can we cling to it. Rather, wouldn't it be great for us to be a church, individuals known as those in whom the gospel has worked. That's what the Thessalonians were known for. In the end, they were known for something that they didn't do. They were known for what the gospel did in them, for the transformation that they experienced and whose message came with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. And transformed them so that they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. That's a reputation worth having 
It is an interesting thing that in the New Testament, particularly in, in, in Peter's letters, he talks about the idea that we need to be ready to give an answer to those who ask us about the hope that is in us. In the New Testament, often the message of the gospel is a message that people listen to when they see its evidence at work in us. You can't take the message out. This isn't that um, horrible quote that I think is attributed to Francis of Assisi, always preach the gospel if you have to use words. Uh, the gospel is a message, always is. But it's a message that is listened to by a people who've seen it at work. People saw it at work in Paul and Silas and Timothy and heard it and embraced it. And the me- and people talk happened in the, amongst the Thessalonians rang out. And people talked of it. Look at what the gospel did in their midst. An example to believers all across Achaia and Macedonia and the south side of Brisbane. What we believe drives what we do. The gospel shapes our response to the gospel. Drives our everything. Friends, wouldn't it be great if our community heard that this was a place where people were transformed? Pray that God's word would be at work in us. That his work in us would draw others to want to know him. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that outrageously we are loved by you. Set your love on us, you have chosen us. And that in your mercy, you have given us the wonder of the message of Jesus. The wonder of a message of life transformed and a message that comes not simply as words, but with power to transform. The Holy Spirit at work, deep conviction. May we be a people who long for the reputation that we are those who have been transformed by the gospel. And if that leaves us with a bad reputation in this world around us, help us to bear that for the sake of the one whose approval is all. For you, we pray in Jesus' name.